Welcome to Overhead Space, where business leaders learn about the new dynamics of our changing world so they can grow their companies within it. My name is Jane Cavalier, longtime business and brand strategist, and I'm your host as we speak with some incredible people from business, academia, philanthropy, entertainment, government, technology, and more. You'll hear extraordinary insights and real-world experiences that will broaden your mind, inspire new thinking, and hopefully help you connect the dots in new ways. Today, we have a real treat. I am here with Barnaby Marsh, one of my favorite people from the world of philanthropy. Barnaby is a philanthropic advisor to the world's biggest philanthropists and philanthropic institutions. His job is to work with billionaires to help put their money to work to make the world a better place. Over 30 years, Barnaby has put billions of philanthropic dollars to work in places where they've had transformational impact. During that time, he has also observed massive amounts of dollars going to waste, and he's going to talk about how to avoid that. He's also going to tell us about the changes underway in the world of philanthropy, including new opportunities and challenges facing donors and the transference of wealth to younger generations. Barnaby is a visiting scholar at the Princeton Institute of Advanced Study and co-author of the book, How Luck Happens, Using the Science of Luck to Transform Work, Love, and Life. I've known Barnaby for quite a few years, and we've worked on some terrific projects together. He has extraordinary insights into how philanthropy really works and the challenges facing people who are giving away the money and the very imperfect process of how that money gets put to work. We share a passion to make the world a better place. Barnaby, thank you for being here today. Hi, Jane. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I understand you're uh, calling in from New Jersey. How is it out there? Rural New Jersey, leafy, I think mostly happy, and uh, people are getting out as the heat permits. (laughs) Well, glad to hear it. Uh, Thanks for being with us to talk about the world of philanthropy because... When I think about that changing world, you are one of the very few people that that I think really has insight into what's going on. So I wanted to just start, for everyone who's listening today, if you could describe today's philanthropic market and, and what are the trends that are transforming it? Right. Well, there are obviously different segments of that market, um, uh, ranging from people who, you know, given their local communities, uh, to people who have been, for instance, very successful in business and who are deciding on what's next in their life, what sort of capstones uh, they want to be thinking about. What I've been seeing, especially over the last 15 or 20 years in this area, is that people aren't waiting uh, until they're almost ready to die before they're thinking about making big gifts. They're giving earlier on. They're giving earlier on in their lives. They're involving their families. And that's really changing the way philanthropy is done. And how so? Well, for instance, people philanthropy is not easy, especially with larger amounts of money. It changes relationships. Uh, Money is not necessarily used the way that uh, people think it will be used. And things go wrong. And so as people are giving as opposed to the old model where people might leave money in their will for a cause that they care about or establish a new foundation and let others sort of sort things out, 
the people who are giving are realizing that uh, there's more to philanthropy than, than that. And so you see things going wrong. They get more engaged. And I think that's a really healthy, it's a really healthy process, actually. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. The um, Now, when I read, I always read there are more, you know, big donors now than ever before. And then I also read that there's sometimes there's a reluctance to commit. For instance, I remember when Bill Gates and Warren Buffett started the giving pledge. Um, and I heard they really weren't getting that much traction. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's related to what I was saying before in that, you know, when a mistakes happen or when money is misdirected or anything like that, it creates a lot of, um, you know, it gets a lot of attention. And so people are wary of that. Um, and it really does make people a lot more cautious about how they're giving and what they're doing. Uh, another thing is that you know, people are realizing that just making a pledge and saying that there's a lot of money to solve a problem doesn't necessarily solve the problem. So in the old days, you'd have more of a culture of idealistic visions and then finding that the visions don't really work in practice. And I think what we're seeing more today is a process that's more deliberate where the philanthropists, who are the ones that are better at what they do, take some time to look around at the different possibilities, meet some of the different agents to change, and work on projects more gradually. And that creates an issue with the flow of money because the money doesn't necessarily flow right away, but flows over a more extended period of time. So I've seen a lot of that. And again, it's been a big shift uh, in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, it was very common for someone to just make a, an announcement of a giant gift and then um, you know, no one would really hear about what happened to that gift. It'd be sort of no news. <laughs> and one of the reasons that there's often no news is because there are hiccups along the way. And uh, there's nothing to really hear about because things, things hit some bumps. That's what we're seeing, Jane. So is it usual, for instance, I mean, 50% hit bumps, 100% hit bumps. And what is the expectation if you are committing a significant amount of money to an initiative. I mean, what, what what should I have in my mind if I'm a donor and I'm going to be, I don't know, committing $50 million, $100 million? So it's a 100% chance you have bumps, Jane. Uh, what we see is, is I'm, I've been working in this area for a while. I can see that some, some bumps are more common than others. And that's one of the things I work on with the people that I work with. We try to avoid hitting the bumps that are foreseeable, that cost not only the, the money, but they cost time. And often the time is the limited factor here, that these are busy people or they might have had a recent life event and they might not have 25 years of just time to experiment. So what we can do is we can look at the sort of the bigger bumps and look at ways to avoid those or steer around them. And then there'll always be issues and but those, the nature of those issues will change. For instance, just like if you run a business and you're growing a business, one of the key parameters is who you have working for you. And so finding good people who can solve problems is is one of the things that I focus on a lot with the clients that I work with. 
uh, people who are original, who are risk takers, but who aren't afraid to get into trouble because they can solve problems well. Um, so that's one of the most common ones. But depending on which area it is, whether it's you know medical research and hospitals or education or the environment, there are different types of issues that come up again and again and again. And I have to say that the thing that's most disheartening in this space for me is, as a professional who's been working in this space is that a lot of people go out you know, very idealistically without considering um, some of the bumps in the road that others have hit. And so they make the same mistakes that others have made. And you see that over and over and over again. What are those? What are those? Are you mentioning some of the most frequent bumps, like just a couple of examples? Well, I think so. From the get-go, one one of the early, one of the biggest issues is just thinking that money alone solves problems. Let's <laughs> say um, so might have a poverty initiative where you know you might think, well, a way to alleviate poverty is to give people money, right? Which is common sense, right? But something like that doesn't typically have a sustainable uh, benefit. You know, when the money runs out, then the problem is still there. So in a case like that, you, you look at ways that the money can be used to ma- to generate more wealth. Uh, so ways to subsidize entrepreneurial behavior, uh, ways to uh, do things in a community that wouldn't otherwise get done to build solidarity, to build um, awareness of certain types of possibilities and opportunities, uh, and ways to sort of ele- elevate those who are natural leaders uh, within communities and support those people. Uh, those types of solutions will have a typically a more lasting generative effect that, that will grow over time as opposed to sort of just dissipating uh, and then, you know, five years later, there not being any result. Exactly. So one mm-hmm. is that there's a naivete about if I just throw a lot of money at this, money will solve the problem. What's another common bump in the road that you see frequently over and over again? A lot of times people are not too, people are not sure about exactly what they want their money to achieve, their philanthropy to achieve. And without a clear goal, it's sometimes really hard to make progress towards that goal. So, um, and that's pretty much the case in any philanthropic area, that if you care about a cause, uh, it's best to have a specific idea of what kind of change you want your benefaction to have. And is this something general, like help education? <laughs> and I think there was a case like that a few years ago with, um, I think it was Mark Zuckerberg in Newark. And he gave $100 million, but without really, really any specifics. And then it was the money was gone, and nobody really knew what happened to it. So... Um, that sort of thing is common as well. Be specific, and then there can at least be, you know, it can orient towards people towards a specific goal. But it's general, like, you know, save the environment. Um, money can just dissipate very easily. So when you meet with people, Barnaby, do you, how, how often do people have that specific goal? And, and when they don't have it, is that something that you do work with them to figure out that, you know, I like health education, well, let me help you narrow that down? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so immediately I can tell how much thought someone's given you know, to their philanthropy by how clear their goals are. And 
that's very common. People haven't thought very much. They'll just have an area of general interest to them. But those who have had more, uh, who have thought about it more, will have more specifics. So we can, I work with them on that. I, I work with them by sometimes playing devil's advocate. They're saying, well, you know, what happens if this ha- you know goes wrong or that goes wrong? Or have you looked at what so-and-so is doing? And that way we can really sort of get all the possibilities on the table or as many other possibilities that we know about as possible on the table to discuss. And then sort of the next step from there is always trying things out. And that's, that's also another newish direction in philanthropy is that people like to start smaller and see a proof of concept that works. And then if they see it working, they might, they might be more inclined to give more at a later date. In the old days, it, was, it wasn't like that. It would be like, you know, people would leave, uh, you know, money for medical research in their will, something like that. And then the executors or whoever was in charge would have to figure out what to do with it. And often these would be people who wouldn't have any particular expertise in, in, in what, the, what the donor cared about. Um, so we're seeing, as I say, it's a very healthy trend being a bit more careful and cautious in a way, but it's also slowing down some of the some of the larger benefactions. What's interesting about that is, I mean, I really like that idea of basically making it happen over time, and especially in, you know in a changing world, right? So you can hmm. test and learn and and adapt and pivot as necessary. Uh, if that's the case, then a philanthropist really should look at a runway of giving of, what, 10 or 20 years? Yeah, at least. Uh, one of the things I always encourage my clients to do is to start as early as possible. And they're encouraged their, if they've got kids, they encourage their kids to start as early as possible. Because there's really no substitute for experience in this area. Each each project is a little bit different, and the leadership on different projects is different. And so it really does take time. It's really hard to have projects that work just from the start. And so giving, having time on your side really is really helpful. And, um, and we're seeing more of that right now, which I'm, I'm reassured by. It sounds like, interestingly, in the old days, you would, oh, I, I, I want to be a charitable person. I'm going to put this money in my will, and then all good things are, are going to happen. It really didn't require much time. Hmm. Now, this process that you're talking about, it seems that a philanthropist would need to devote a certain amount of time to making this a success. That's right. And most people don't think of themselves as philanthropists. It's one more thing they do. Uh, in a sort of a portfolio of different things that keep them busy. And I think we can all relate to this. You know, there's lots of different um, obligations in your community, in your work, your, your family. And philanthropy is one more area where people are striving to make a bigger mark and don't have a full time uh, to devote to that. So what do they do? It's an area where I, I help people a lot because I have that sort of bank of experience and can highlight for people what the most likely scenarios are uh, with different pathways. But that being said, there is no substitute to spending significant amount of time and caring about the philanthropic path. So 
I don't work with people who just say they want to give the money away but don't want to get engaged because that usually leads to a not a very fruitful result. And I want to be associated with projects that have uh, that make a difference. So there isn't a shortcut there, and it's it's sort of the same in in, in any area of life, right, Jane? Um, you know, people do. Uh, have various solutions to sort of help them raise their kids or other areas, run their businesses. But at the end of the day, if you want to make an impact in philanthropy, I, I believe that you need to pay attention to what's going on. You can't just hand it off and say, you know, here's $10 million. I, I want to solve poverty with this. That that typically doesn't yield a particularly good result. Well, it's, okay. So it sounds to me if I had a lot of money to give, and obviously, a lot of these people are, you know, time constrained. They have a lot of interests. Right. Um, they probably don't realize what you're talking about, which is, you know, you have to be engaged. You can't just write a check and expect good things to happen. That I might need to one engage a philanthropic advisor, someone like you, who really can, you know, take on a lot of that work, especially if I was very time constrained, and then expect to engage with that individual. Similar, I think about you know you know my stock advisor right or my financial advisor, where I do have to be engaged in managing my money, but they do a fair amount of the work. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean they're they're different pieces to something like this. So the philanthropic advisor can provide one of the pieces. I'd say an even more important piece is who, if you're giving a, a large enough amount, who you're having manage that. You know, what kind of person is managing and leading that that effort? And so for some projects, I, I play that role. I can play that role. But often people need full-time engagement, and not only of one person, but of a team of people. And once you start developing teams, de- developing, the people that are picked, are, are it's incredibly important to pick the right types of people. People who are creative, problem-solving, and who drive change uh, in ways that um, really help, you know, a, a larger group of people become excited about an idea because that's what it's all about. Not only, you know, changing hearts and changing minds, but also changing the flow of other money out there. And that often, for many of the types of problems that people are concerned about, their money is not going to be enough to make a significant change. There's going to, their money needs to also amplify other money out there to create a broader change. And for that, you need special types of people who are inspiring and who have vision and, um, and who can create, uh, you know, make a difference with the money. And that, that's really an area I always tell my clients, you know, don't skimp on that area. You know, a lot of times I'll look for someone who might have want a side project and volunteer on something, and that's fine. But it's often not good enough. Often you need someone who's just really passionate and driven about making a difference, uh, who's, you know, going to be resourceful. And the sort of litmus test I use is, is this a project that sort of keeps the person up at night and in a positive way? You know, thinking about creative possibilities and engaging other people and doing what it takes to to make a difference. Now, are these the kind of people when you to also when you talk about a team? I start thinking about 
family foundations. You read a lot mm-hmm. about family foundations are common. So um, are also what you're referring to are the forming of fa- family foundations and maybe these are the kind of people who run it or are you talking about something different? No, absolutely, Jane. And this is um, people who have family foundations will identify with it in that typically what they'll do is they'll set up the shell of the foundation first, which is the legal structure, you know, maybe a board of trustees uh, or family members often and friends and other people that they trust. Um, so those those structures are in place. But then I think sort of this dynamo character, it might be an executive director of a foundation or someone who can really sort of drive drive the vision and get traction on the vision and um, ideally, you know, leverage other resources out there because the reality is in many of these philanthropic fields, there are a lot of dormant resources and there are a lot of resources where people do just what I was explaining earlier. You know, they they make a commitment for an area, but it it lacks definition and it lacks sort of concrete conviction. (laughs) And so a, a good executive director will be able to identify those those assets and tap into them and direct them. And that's really where you want to be, uh, being able to tap into the resources that are existing and turn, you know, whatever money you have to work with to amplify it tenfold or more. And I see that in every case of, of successful philanthropy. The philanthropists or their agents are able to tap into other other resources, you know, whether it's PR, you know, research uh, resources in, in getting public attention and engagement or money or institutional support, um, in some cases, governmental support. Some of these issues obviously are, are interesting to politicians. So if they can be packaged in the right way where others can take them on as part of their own cause, that really helps things to snowball a lot better. Wow, is there is there a particular example that inspires you? Like, you know, Jane, here's a here's a great example of how it really worked. Well, uh, the most the the the, the different types of <laughs> examples, um, things, for instance, in the medical research area. If you can, if you're a philanthropist and you help make a medical breakthrough, that changes that changes the. It changes medicine forever, right? A new type of a treatment that's more efficacious um, or a new a new drug to cure a disease or an ailment. A breakthrough there has permanent you know, effects, which, which, is, which is really nice and gratifying. Um, others, I mean, others have, have focused sort of on the middle ground. So, for instance, there's a culture where many philanthropists are focusing on adding prizes as part of their portfolio. And that could be anything from a small, you know, small prizes at local schools for academic achievement to big prizes for like space exploration or um, energy, saving energy to help environmental, with environmental concerns. And the beauty of a prize is that it incentivizes creative individuals to, um, you know, try their idea out, to take their idea from the blackboard into practice. Um, or if you're an individual who's, you know, if it's individual striving, you actually go for the prize as an incentive. And then, you know, for the philanthropists, they know that the money is actually going to, you know, the best solution that's out there, which 
is clever because it lets the environment sort of do the work in terms of sorting out what what what's what's working best. And yeah, then that can be improved upon, yeah. right? That's so a great create, mechanism. Yeah. You know, virtuous cycle of innovation or, you know, if it's, if they're prizes for academic achievement, once students start winning these prizes, they start thinking to themselves, okay, I'm pretty good at this. I'm going to continue with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it can, it can change the direction of careers and uh, also how people regard, you know, themselves and their creative abilities. Okay, so you're a fan of the prize mechanism as a way to, to get positive change. Yeah, as long as it's done right. Again, you see a lot of cases, and a lot, I'm not just saying, there are a lot of cases where they say, I want to make a prize, but then they don't think through the steps. You know, they don't set the criteria at the right level. So prize can't be too easy, and it can't be impossible either. You know, So we make sure that the people who win the prize are, um, you know, fulfilling the, the, the intention of the prize. You don't want it just being gained. Um, but certainly many prizes are just not well structured and they're not well announced. Uh, so there's all these different pieces that you need to look behind the scenes and, and, and know that they're, again, their work needs to be done. You need to apply yourself, take it seriously. And then, yeah, I'm a big fan of prizes as long yeah. as they're done well. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about another uh, hot topic, which is the transference of wealth to the next generation. I I read, I think, I don't know what it is, something like a trillion dollars is going to be moving from the baby boomers uh, down to, you know, their generations, Gen X, Y, and Z. Can you talk a little bit about what you've observed in the transfer of wealth to a younger generation? Sure. Well, most of the wealth that's generated is not necessarily liquid, so it's illiquid wealth. So people will transfer their, you know, businesses um, or they have investment portfolios or transfer those, and it won't necessarily be liquidated. But if it's liquidated and people are using it philanthropically, which is the area I work on, you see in the in the subsequent generation much more of a an interest in rolling their sleeves up and getting engaged, which is really great. Um, I can't say countless times I've worked with families where the younger generation sees these sort of philanthropic opportunities as an outlet for their energy and creativity. And especially when you start early on, I mean, some of the people can do these great things. And that's... Um, that's increasing. The number of younger people who are engaged philanthropically is increasing for sure. And um, they say the millennial generation is maybe less interested in material things, and that's certainly been my experience in working with younger people. Is it's it's more about passion, getting people involved, excited, and creating a better future. And that's that's done in you know of Obviously, sort of in social in social groups and social ways. So very exciting, Jane. That's inspiring. Now, when a donor passes a significant, especially if it's you know after after they pass a significant amount of wealth, are they normally designating to the next generation? This is what I want you to do with it, or are they leaving it open? Well, it really varies, but um, I think typically it's. it's left open um, 
it really depends on how it's being done. So what will happen is that with the super wealthy people, the clients I, I tend to work with, multi-billionaires, they might leave each child a billion dollars that's unrestricted. Uh, but then the larger amount of money, if it's, let's say, $10 billion or $20 billion or a larger amount of money, will be in a vehicle such as a private foundation. And then the gen- different generations can be engaged in that. And other parts, of course, will stay within a family business structure will, that will have you know, different types of ownership structures. So we see a mix where there's sort of typically a discretionary pool that's left the next generation and then also a part of the pool that is committed to continuing the family business or continuing an area of philanthropy that the original creator of the wealth cared passionately about. And that mm-hmm. would be in a private foundation structure. And that's a tough thing because many people, when they are the, the, you know, the originators of the wealth, they'll have clear ideas of what they want with the money. And the next generation might not share the same passion. So right. that creates a dilemma sometimes. I would think so. Mm-hmm. We are, when I think about family foundations, are there any ones in particular that stand out as good examples for people to look at? I, I think you know it really depends on what you want to do and how you want to structure it. The, the best family foundations, you know, Try to anticipate a range of different uh, different outlooks many years into the future. So allow for a diversity of different outlooks so that it doesn't create tensions within the family and splits within the family. So what you see in those structures is a diversity of different baskets of philanthropic areas that the foundation might be focused on. And, yeah, I've, I've named some of the big ones, you know, medicine, health, environment, education. And then different family members can decide which of those areas they want to be engaged in, and they can apply themselves. But they're not rigid structures where everyone needs to focus on the same thing. And what that allows is for mul- you know, multiple generations to find some a niche for themselves and to express their creativity, their philanthropic creativity within that niche and to feel satisfied and gratified by creating something that they've been able to make their, you know, they've been able to shape as opposed to a structure that is narrow with one or two areas of focus. Those tend, tend, tend not to work as well because they, they stimulate uh, just conflict <laughs> between family members. And um, all these things are things that you don't know, think of as thinking about in advance, that you know, their children and their grandchildren and any others that they involve might have radically different worldviews and how those can be accommodated in a way that doesn't create you know, family, family tension is really critical. Yeah. Um, when you're thinking about areas that are ripe for transformational impact, I mean, I know there always have been traditional areas that people have had interest in, education, um, you know, health. Um, what what new areas do you think are really ripe for transformational impact where dollars could have a real impact, um, you know, over the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, first of all, 
I think those traditional areas like health and education, those actually do have some of the biggest possibilities for radical transformation. Uh, just because some of the systems there are systems that were designed and built in a different age. And in our age of interconnectivity, especially now as more people are learning, you know, they're spending more time at home, there are different possibility frontiers. So I think they will we'll see a lot of transformation in how people, you know, they might not sit around in the doctor's office for a few hours waiting for an appointment uh, as much as they used to, or they, they, they might not be sitting sort of warehouse-type schools as, as much. But for new areas, definitely the changes in technology are creating possibilities to reach bigger numbers of people faster, easier. And what we're seeing is that the, you know, for ideas that are interesting, novel, engaging, there are possibilities now that didn't exist even 10 or 20 years ago. And mm. so anything that can harness, especially awareness, most people, when they're thinking about philanthropy, they're not thinking about awareness campaigns per se. That's sort of secondary. I think we're going to see more people thinking of the awareness campaign as the primary driver of societal change, as opposed to sort of a secondary thing that you add on to whatever you care about. Because that's really where a lot of the action is right now, is, is, is winning hearts and minds to create, you know, a sort of a generation and a society that um, brings about new types of possibilities for, for citizens. So uh, that's interesting. So you're saying that in terms of creating change, really needing to put some philanthropic dollars toward campaigns or content or experiences or ways that the public or particular segments of the public can be engaged or trained or transformed? Absolutely, Jane. Absolutely. There's no question about it. And what I see is a lot of the people that are, you know, large philanthropists, they live sort of in a, a rarefied bubble, right? They're surrounded by people who um, sort of tell them what they want to hear, and they think they're having a big impact, but they really aren't because they're talking to people who already believe what they believe, and it's not really going beyond that. The real test is really convincing people who are not necessarily passionate about an area to be passionate about it. And if you're successful at that and able to convince more and more more people that an area of interest is critical and urgent and actionable, then it can really change things a lot. So, you know, not only do you get more people involved, but other philanthropists then can become involved on an idea, have ideas of their own to add to it. And if there's enough success on a sort of public awareness horizon, you know, people in government start paying attention. And you see laws changing. And you see resources being diverted differently. So that really is one of the frontiers for philanthropic innovation, is figuring out that piece of public awareness and engaging people, and then bringing about sort of broader innovation that way. Yeah. So Barnaby, that's uh, a lot of great insights. Um, just one last question is, 
let's say we're talking to a billionaire and they have a significant amount. You know, let's say one of like, for instance, one of your larger clients. Mm-hmm. What what single message or advice would you give to somebody who still has not yet made the commitment? I mean, advice in terms of be sure to watch out for this or keep your eyes open for that or uh, be open to this. You know, what what would you say? Just be committed. Be involved. Yeah. Be present. And that's the single most important principle in any of this, especially with large amounts of money. Talk about this. You know, I talk about this with them. If they, whether it's a million dollars or a billion dollars, you can talk about how much effort went into making that money, and often considerable effort early on, many hours, many weeks, many years. <laughs> and so the idea is about how to how to give it away effectively. It shouldn't be a five minute. It shouldn't be a five minute exercise or even a two-hour exercise and very often when they're when these people talk with their estate planners or their lawyers you know it it gets very little attention just a few minutes or maybe an hour or two and there are billions of dollars sometimes so pay attention you know be engaged be involved and it doesn't need to be a full-time you know effort but it does need to be you know full engagement uh, for for at least a few hours a week or something like that. And that is the biggest return. The very biggest impact can be just made by the person who made the wealth committing to pay close attention, to have high standards, and make great things happen. Great advice, Barnaby. Well, that's a lot to process. Seems like there's a lot of change going on. I'm sure people really appreciated hearing these insights. And thank you again, everybody. This is Barnaby Marsh, uh, absolutely fantastic philanthropic advisor who's got uh, just a lot of insight to bring. Barnaby, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks so much, Jane. A pleasure. You have been listening to Overhead Space, hosted by Jane Cavalier, CEO and President of Brightmark Consulting. To read more from Overhead Space or to listen to more podcasts, visit www.brightmarkconsulting.com and check out the social media links below. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again for Overhead Space, business and branding insights to grow your company in the new world.